All right, well, good morning. All right, it's good to see you guys. Hey, my name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. I want to continue to just add my welcome to all the welcomes you guys have gotten. This is a great church. If you're new, keep uh, checking out. We'd love to get you connected and involved. Uh, this is a great place with great people. And, uh, and, and I know Ken said this, but I say this. If uh, we haven't met, uh, stop by and uh, make sure you say hi. I'd love to, to, to meet you, hear your story. So um, it's weird for me, uh, this January 15th, and um, last time I was up here was in 2022, you know, uh, and it's 2023. And so it's just kind of like that, that long time. And so it's good for me to, to get back into uh, rhythm uh, of things uh, here. Uh, we've been in this series called Witnesses. Uh, we've only got two weeks left uh, today uh, and next week, and then we'll jump into some new content uh, kind of for the rest of the semester. And so really excited uh, about that. Uh, we're only making it through 17 chapters out of, you know, uh, uh, about double. Uh, so you're like, what happened to the rest of the book? Great question. Um, we'll maybe do it another time, you know. Um, so, hey, you know, it's, it's been a long time since I've been here, and so as I was processing through, um, you know, stuff this morning, I was thinking through Christmas, and, and uh, you know, for us, our family uh, got the opportunity to go down to my folks who live in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, and uh, so we went down there for a week, and then we took a little bit more time, and we kind of made a triangle and, and went back up north uh, over to Madison, Wisconsin, because that's where uh, my wife's family is, and normally we kind of just do one um, but, uh, you know, Nikki's mom has had a stroke and so, um, in recent past, and so we wanted to make sure that we were there with her and got to spend time with her. Um, many of you guys have been praying for her on a regular basis. Thank you so much uh, for doing that. She's in a, a much better um, place. She's, you know, she's healthy. She's moving forward, and it's kind of that long journey, but appreciate uh, your, um, your prayers. Uh, it, was a, it was a different trip for us in that, that we were driving up, and you know, we just did the whole... Um, you know, the whole car trip, like everything that goes with the car trip and, uh, car, uh, trip and you know, all the humdrum of normal activity and packing the car and getting there. Um, and, uh, but yet something strange um, or different or unique happened to me um, this time is that we, we pulled into Madison and, and we pulled into, um, into her driveway, into her parents' driveway. And if you don't know, Nikki and I's story is that um, we were both working at the church there. I was working in college ministry and she was working in high school ministry. And so that's where like, we met. And I wish I could tell you that whole story, but it's like forever long um, and super good. That's <laughs> so fun. And Nikki hates it probably when I say it, when I, when I talk about it. Um, but like, this is where we met. And so like we walked in and I saw the house and like something like started changing in my mind, in my heart. It was different than other times. And, and as we opened the door and walked in, I don't know why or what it was, but it was like the spirit, like the aroma of the house, like in a good way, not a bad way. They smell good, not bad, okay? I always say, speak kindly of your, of your in-laws. Um, and like, as I walk in, it's like the smell, the sights or whatever it was in that space, you know, like I was like, I was like, 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 wow. Like, and it was like this, this flash, like this, this memory lane that started jogging and going back through my, through my head. And that first thought that came to my mind was, this is where Nikki and I fell in love. And Nikki's like, that's so sappy. <laughs> She's like, don't say that. It's so sappy. Now you know who's the romance in, in our family. Um, just kidding, sorry. Um, so, um, so like I'm having this memory trip lane, and, and I'm like looking around the room, and you know, and I like I remember the dining table, and you know where we had some of those meals, and then I remember watching our first movie together, and and like when was the first time we held hands, and it goes, you know, and it shoots that, that like shock up your arm, and you know, like there's just this excitement, 
in those moments. As you, there's all this uncertainty, like, because inside I'm going, I hope, I think that she's the one, I hope that she's the one. Does she really, she just, she just punched me. Does that mean she likes me? She doesn't like me? Like, you, don't, you just don't know. You're just trying to figure those things out and, and, and all the uncertainty of those early relationship things. And, and, uh, and so I, but that was where we, where we fell in love. And, you know, as I was processing, you know, 11 years later, I started in shape, now I'm out of shape. I started with more hair. Now I have less hair. We've gone through three houses. We have bill after bill after bill after bill that keeps piling, right? There's always bills, right? We had one dog, then two dogs, then back to one dog. Then we had a kid, and then you got projects and all these things, right? And 11 years later, what we can say, what I can say with confidence is that that Nikki and I have grown deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in love with each other, which is great, right? That's, That's the way it's supposed to work, okay? If you don't know, that's the way it's supposed to be. But at the same time, I could say this, is that as much as I love my wife, I've forgotten what it was like to be pursued. You see, there's this time in the relationship where there's uncertainty. And then when you enter into that relationship and as life just begins, you fall deeper in love, but you forget and you miss what it was like to be in the excitement of the pursuit. And I wonder sometimes if that's true for us in the church. Because at one point, you and I were at the center before we knew Jesus, and maybe you don't. And maybe God's still tugging on your heart and pulling and pulling and and speaking and saying, hey, I've got something better. But at one point, right, you and I were at the center of his redemptive, unconditional pursuit. And wherever we went, he was following and tugging and speaking and there's this pursuit, right? There's this excitement. But then all of a sudden, you know, you, you begin to follow Jesus and then 11 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years later, you go, but I forget and I miss that God is doing the exact same thing that he once did with me, but with other people. And so while we are at the center, there's two things to remember today, right? There's like you are at the center. You and I, we collectively are at the center of God's unconditional love. And that's a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, lifetime experience that we grow in. And yet at the same time, as much as he loves us, he says, but I also love other people. I want to invite you into something bigger. You see, we started in the book of Acts, right, with Acts chapter 1. Verse 8, and what does it say? It says that you, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you'll be filled. And what's going to happen is that you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be people who have experienced the transformative work of the love of Christ in, in, in and through the gospel. You'll be a new creation. You'll be a witness to who I am. And it's going to start in Jerusalem, and then it's going to go to Judea, and then it's going to go to Samaria, and then it's going to be to the end of the earth. And it's like dropping a massive rock in a lake, and you see the ripple effects that go out into the world. And that's where it started. And it starts in Jerusalem, right? And it starts in there. And and as they do it, right, these first 12 chapters of Acts focus on the Jerusalem area. And God just multiplies greatly the church. It's numerically, it's just, you know, like it's just growing like crazy. And as we jump into Acts chapter 13 today, what we're going to find is that the next chapter of Acts actually initiates a new kind of growth, 
a new kind of openness, right, in which we discovered earlier, but now it's going to take this formal effect that the gospel is not just for the Jews, it's for the Gentiles. And it's they're going to send Paul and Barnabas, and they're going to commission them and send them into the world. And so really what we're talking about is we're talking about the full inclusion of people who are not Jews, which includes everybody here. The full inclusion of the Gentiles, which means that what we're going to talk about in Acts chapter 13 is diversity. And here's what I want you to know, guys, if you forget everything else, let this sit and resonate in your heart. The church is designed for diversity. The church is designed for diversity. Let me read um, Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through three. It's only three verses, okay? Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. You know, when you read these verses, there's not a ton there. And if you were to go, you know, buy a commentary and, and like read through all the different notes, like you wouldn't find a ton of stuff on this passage because there's far other bigger things that people need to unpack in the scholarly world. But, but right here, right, there's not a lot on it. And yet what I would tell you guys is that there are some profoundly important things in these three verses that initiate the next step of the kingdom and that you and I as readers... In, in this century, in this world, need to remember that while the Bible was written for us, it was not written to us. And so there are things that happen in these three verses that you and I are not naturally inclined to understand because this is not where we live and this is not who we are, right? So it starts, when we think about the diversity of the church, right, it says, now there were in the church at Antioch, okay? Let's just stop, okay? So we live in the Fargo-Moorhead area, right? In this space, in this, in, this, in this geography, right? And if I were to ask you, or if you were on a plane or wherever you were and somebody said, you know, hey, tell me about Fargo-Moorhead, what would you say? Like, think about this, like in your mind, like how would you describe this area to people? You know, some of those basic things you might say, you know, at least for me, I go, there's great food. I'm a foodie, so I love the different food places that we have, Right? Um, when we lived in Charlotte, there was no good coffee spots. It was, it was all, chain rest, like all chain coffee. It's like, hey, you want to meet for coffee? Yeah, not really. You know, because it wasn't that great. Here, there's great coffee. I love that. Here, even more than anything, is that there's good people. There's great people here, right? right this is the upper Midwest. Like, they're so down to earth, and we're kind to each other, right? And there's so much of that good stuff, right? But also, as a, as a niche of that, Fargo-Moorhead, how we might describe it is we go, hey, what's unique to us is that the nations live right here. Like, how cool is that if you were to describe to somebody on a plane that, the, that we are the grounds of people from all across the world? They're like, really, Fargo-Moorhead? Yeah, right here, you should move here, you know? Like, there's this excitement that we have about Fargo-Moorhead. We can talk about it, but let me, let me ask you this. Like, if you were to say, like, hey, tell me about Sa uh, Sao Paulo, and you'd be like, yeah, where's that? Tell me about Munich. What do you know about that city? 
<laughs> I can tell you a few things, you know, just a couple. And the reality is, is that we just don't know the city. When you think about Antioch, here's what's unique about Antioch, right? It's not just in a different country, it's in a different time. <laughs> it's a different time, right? Not just a different time zone, different time. And so if you had like your, if you looked at your um, companion journal or, or anything this week, you might, you might realize um, that these are some of the things that we know about Antioch, right? Antioch was the third largest city in the entire Roman world. So you've got Rome, which is massive. You've got Alexandria, which is massive. And then you've got Antioch. On an, any given normal day, there are half a million people in Antioch. Now, Jerusalem could swell to half a million people on festival weeks, but half a million people, 500,000 people in first century world, imagine that kind of a city. That's huge. Every day, day in and day out. What was traffic like? The, the roads were just packed with people with baskets. Let me tell you, it was just crazy. It's so, it's so big, right? So you think about this. It's, it's in the midst of that half a million people, right, there's this wide range of people. To our knowledge, that there are up to 18 different ethnicities in Antioch. You know, like 18. And just like a normal city, like you go to Chicago or New York or LA, what we tend to do is we tend to pocket ourselves, right? We find the people that we have an affinity with, and we live here, and then they live there, and, and they live there. And the same thing was true in Antioch. is very pocketed. And one of those different ethnicities was the Jews. So outside of Jerusalem, right, Antioch had the next highest number of Jews in the known world. So it makes sense that Antioch, especially in its, in its strategy and its moving into this, into this kingdom sense of, of reaching the full inclusion of the Gentiles, it makes sense that Antioch becomes kind of like this new base of operations for the Christian church. It's actually in Antioch that, that the Christians are first called Christians. You can look back in Acts chapter 11 and discover that. Like, think about that for a second. Right? Not, not in Jerusalem, where there are Christians, but in Antioch, where there are 18 different ethnicities. 18 different people, groups, at least, and that's the place, that's the space where the identity around Christianity, this way of life, begins to be formed for the world. You see, because what we're identifying is that it's not about the things that the world uses to define us. What's uniting us as a church and as a body of people is not a building, it's a person, and that's Jesus Christ. And that's where this identity gets delved out or like it gets expanded is in Antioch, that these are people of the way. And I think that there's something so beautiful and simple about gospel movements is that as you look at the ripple effects as the gospel moves through the, the known world with each step, the more and more diverse the church becomes because the Jews don't live all the way at the ends of the earth right? Other people do. And so there's this constant inclusion of people of different races and ethnicities. And there's something beautiful about that. And so what we see in Antioch is actually the very first multi-ethnic church. And it's an incredible church. It's an incredible, beautiful picture. It's this microcosm of the way that the world will eventually see it and the way that the world is supposed to be in light of who Jesus is gathered in the church. 
it's not just a diverse city. I mean, it's obviously super diverse, right? But there's also a diverse group of leaders that are present in the church. And you look at, uh, it says they're prophets and teachers, right? And so you go, okay, so there's different giftings. Prophets are designed and gifted by God to, to call people back into right relationship with God. And, and teachers are the ones who are opening up and go, man, like, let's, let's talk through that. I, Isaiah 9, let's, let's talk about how this, let's unpack this and see how that points us to Jesus, right? And so you have these different gifts that are growing and challenging and shepherding and loving on the church. And so these diverse, these diverse giftings in the church, but it's not just giftings, it's, it's people. The first person is who? It's Barnabas. You know where Barnabas is from? He's from Cyprus. Do you know where that is? That's an island. And so this is a Jew, doesn't live in Jerusalem, didn't grow up there. He was in Cyprus, and now he's, he's on the mainland in Antioch. And so here's this guy. Then you have this guy um, named Niger, right? Niger in, in uh, Latin means black. And so the best as we can understand, this is a, a black man from northern Africa, along with Lucius, who's probably some type of a companion, maybe from a, a more western part, but two black guys and, 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 a, and a Jew, right? It's the start of this. And then you've got this, you've got this guy named Menaean. Who's Menaean? He's the lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch right? He's the grandson of Herod the Great, who, who initially slaughtered all of the, the babies in order to protect his kingdom against Jesus. And you're like, that's your lineage. What was it like growing up in that as, with him as a friend? Right? That's a, and yet God had placed Menaean in a personal, lifelong relationship with some of the highest political powers of his day. And you go, well, who, what's his story? You know, like, how's God using this guy? That's incredible. And then I love how the text in it says, and Saul. You know, like we know Saul as Paul, you know, and they just like, it's like he throws him in, he's like, yep, and Billy Graham, <laughs> you know? It's like, and the guy who's going to help change everything, and Saul. You see, we'll talk more about Saul next week uh, in Acts 17, but you know, when I think about Saul, you know, you go back to Acts chapter 9, this is a guy who demonstrates, the, in some sense, the total opposite of what Jesus was, right? This is a guy who, who says, it's my goal, it's my purpose in life to, to adhere to the law and, and to strictly obey that and to, and to force Christians into imprisonment. And he even condones the Stephen, um, Stephen's death, the first martyr, right, in the Christian church. And so as you think about this, you know, like, and yet God shows up in Saul's life and he has this transformative work in this experience. And all of a sudden, his life has changed. And so when you think about each of these guys, you think about Barnabas, you think about Niger, you think about Lucius, you think about Menaean, and you think about Saul. Every single one of these guys was at one point in the same way like you and me were at the center of God's pursuit. This redemptive love that's constantly going as they turn, right? God and the Holy Spirit are constantly there talking and asking and nudging and pulling and drawing back into relationship. And in the moment that they surrender as that changes their life, God, whether it was then or later, said, I love you. I also want to invite you into something bigger. I want to invite you into something bigger in your life. And they become the symbol for us as we think about what God wants to do and how he wants to work both in us and through us. And so here you've got this radically diverse group. You've got a group of leaders who are ethnically different from each other, right? 
um, they are, um, they have different backgrounds, they have different giftings, and I go, like, just the question in my mind this week was, I wonder, like, what was their community like? What was their community like between these guys? And, and, and they're just a representation of the entire church at Antioch, which is the first multi-ethnic church. You go, I wonder, what was their community like? Like, I bet it was stretching at times. I bet it was really hard at times, but I bet also, I, I would guess also that it's incredibly deep and incredibly rich because I think, I, and I, don't, I, I think that diverse churches have to embrace the gospel at a different level. Because when you have a, a homogenous church, right, and you all have the same affinity, but if you have a heterogeneous church that has all different kinds of people, all of a sudden it goes deeper and deeper and we have to go all the way to the bottom where the gospel then is what truly unites us. And I don't know exactly if this is true, but you go, why, why is it that that is the case? I go, I Maybe it's because the, the, the natural boundaries that the world uses to define people, it's not the way that the church should, but the natural way that the world chooses to define people forces us in the church to rely on something so much deeper than cultural norms and affinities. Because at the center and at the core of this is Jesus. And it's one thing. Guys, to go, what would their community be like? I just want to get a glimpse into their gatherings. What was that like? How did they interact? What did they do? Right? There's this beautiful picture that they would have experienced Jesus together in unity. That it's not these other things that define us, but that it's Jesus. It's one thing to experience that. But I also go, what is that picture and portrait for the rest of Antioch? Like, what is that? Like, the whole city, like, as they encounter the church, this multicultural church at Antioch, they're like, you guys don't look at all the same. You don't sound the same, and yet you guys are the same. What is it that you have that we don't have? Because in a world that's pocketed, in a world that is diversely pocketed, diverse but pocketed, the Christian church, there's unity. And that's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the church, right? And Antioch then becomes this microcosm of what the worldwide church would one day look like. I don't know about you guys, but I love, um, I love ethnic foods. Um, how many of you guys have ever heard of bibimbap? Yes, last service, there was one person. I think they were scared to raise their hand. They weren't even sure if I was talking about the same thing, Right? Bibimbap is a Korean dish. I love it. It's so good. Um, chicken tikka masala. Yeah, right? Yum, right? There's all sorts of foods that we could list that we go, man, like these types of things bring diversity into our life. And as we experience the flavor palettes, it's so different from the around where you're, you're essentially tasting the world. And it's, this, it's, this, it's this, this experience for us. And here's my thought, and here's my challenge, as we, as we eat these types of foods, like even as a foodie, I love going to these places, but here's my thought and challenge is that behind that food is a culture, and behind that culture are a people. And I want to I move beyond the food, and I want to go, I want to know what they're like, like what does life look like for them and who they are, and bring them into my life to see what they can show me and teach me and how I can learn from them. Yeah, when we were, um, 
Well, many of you guys know, some of you guys might be new, and some of you don't know, we have a daughter who's four, she was adopted, um, and uh, when we uh, lived in Charlotte, um, Charlotte is a city, North Carolina is very, very diverse, um, and yet our church, because we were in South Charlotte, was predominantly white, and so part of going through the adoption process for us is that we learned that in order to raise like a healthy kid, part of what we needed to do as a multi-ethnic family, right, as a multi-ethnic family, part of what we need to do to raise a healthy kid was to give her opportunities for what we would call racial mirroring. And see, what that means is that we wanted Eden to be able to see people that she could look up to and say, I have the same color of skin as that person, and that they are in leadership, and that they have role in society and community. And so we, um, we did some research, actually correction, um, Nikki did all of the research. <laughs> um, and she found a doctor, I know, I love, I love taking credit for the things my wife does, right? Um, and she found a doctor. And so we started going to this doctor with Eden. It was this beautiful experience between this, this black doctor and, and our little black girl. And it was incredible for me to watch her interact with and engage. And I remember one moment when she said, Eden said, she has the same color of skin as I do. And I'm like, yes. That's, that's beautiful. What a great example. We want you to see that, you know, like, because we're, we're doing this. And then in one day, like, we were coming back from somewhere. I don't remember where it was, um, but uh, we had lost, like, a bag or something had happened. And, like, we're, like, frantic, like, the crazy white people, like, frantically in the airport, like, trying to, to, to corral this, this little girl who wants to bounce off the, off the walls, you know, and then we're trying to find a bag, and it's this, this crazy moment, and we're going boom, 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 and out of the corner we hear, hey, Dunham's, and we turn and we look, and it's her doctor. And we're like, how are you doing? It's so good to see you. We start talking, and in the midst of this, my eyes, like, I'm like trying to find my bag still, and she's like, what's going on? Do you need some help? And I'm like, I, they lost my bag. It's a big deal. We've got stuff. We've got to get out of it. And she's like, go ahead, go. I've got this. And I was like, hey, can I do this? <laughs> you know? Um, and yet, because we had had a long enough relationship with her, we could. And so here's this doctor with our little girl in the middle of the airport. And it's this beautiful, beautiful picture. And as I think about this, guys, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but part of why we feel that God led us to Fargo-Moorhead was because the nations are here. We want our daughter here. We want her around people. And as, a, and as I think about this, right, in, in our life, um, like, I, I think about this in our church, right? Like, Salem has this history of diversity, which is so great, and I love that. And so I go, man, like, let's continue to embrace it, and let's pursue it. Let's pursue it over and over and over again. I was trying to think of an illustration that would help and, and work um, for this, and so, like, the image of a funnel came to mind, okay? So picture this, right, as a funnel, Right, the top, right, and then the bottom. This is where it goes in, this is where it comes out. And so when I think about a funnel, right, this can represent, the top represents the breadth and the width of all of the people that we could collect and invite and be, have a part of our church. This is what it comes into, right? And yeah, there's diversity here. In fact, the, the, the larger the top, the more diverse it is, 
right? And, but yet when you come down, down to the bottom, what we find is that this, though, is smaller. This is narrower. This is more like it's, it's confined, it's restrictive, but it's focused because this is where there's unity. There's diversity in the top, and there's unity at the core. This is where it comes out. And when I think about this funnel, it's kind of a, it's a great example and it's a bad example. Here's why. Because this, in many ways, and this is, this is kind of challenging to think about, this is a small funnel. Think about this, like going through the nations and trying to collect people of all tribes, tongues, and nations in such a small funnel. It's hard, isn't it? And so for, for a lot of churches, we end up being homogenous, right? And there's this heterogeneous church that says, like, like if we can expand the nozzle of the, of the church, and if we can create the, a, a breadth and a width to our church that, that is inclusive, that says people from everywhere are a part of our body. And yet, at the same time, as it comes down to this, we say, but this is where we're united, is at the core and is at the end. And so when I think about the church of Antioch and in all of its diversity, and then I think about here in Fargo-Moorhead, in all of its diversity, I want you to picture this, right? Because Antioch, as a diverse city, was being met by a diverse church, but a united church. What does that show? It shows radical counterculturalism. It shows that a church says it's not about, to us, it's not about all of these other things and boundaries and the way that the world would naturally define us, whether it's by our ethnicity or our socioeconomic status or our jobs or whatever it is that we would say that this is who we are. And that's a picture of the gospel. It's radically countercultural and it's radically powerful. So there's this diversity in the church, but look at the unity in verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Like, what are they doing? Worshiping. What are they doing? Worshiping. See, when I think about all of this, right, I go, it's, it's unclear who the they is, while they, like maybe it's the, just the leadership, maybe it's just Saul and this, this random collection of people, but maybe, the text doesn't tell us, but maybe it's the entire congregation. So as you think about the diversity in this space, right, you've got people who look different, who talk different, who eat different foods, and they keep trying to get you to eat that food. You're like, I don't want to eat that food. But there's those people, and then there's these people over here, and these people over here, and you think about the diversity of that room. And yet, what are they doing? They're worshiping. You see, it's the same God, the same creator, it's the same Jesus, it's the same gospel. The wider the diversity, the deeper the unity. I love that. Wider the diversity, the deeper the unity. It says that they're worshiping and they're fasting. You know, fasting for many of us is, is maybe a lost art. You know, here's what fasting is. When you think about this, it's the willingness to set aside the normal demands of life in order to concentrate on what God wants. This is what Jesus does in the wilderness, right? He fasts from food. So oftentimes we think about some food, we can do it with all sorts of things, you know, that we can pull out of our life and, and to take away the normal demands so that we can concentrate on what God wants. And so when you think about people who are worshiping the creator, right, this diverse group of people who are worshiping the creator, 
creator together, and yet you add on top of that that they're fasting together, all of a sudden you begin to see, gosh, do you see how much there's unity in that? You see, people as individuals and as an entire community are saying, we're going to give up this so that we, we can focus on what God wants for in me and through me. Like, wow, that's tremendous unity. There's something so cool about that as an opportunity for the church. And I think about us here at church, every Sunday we gather, we're fostering unity around what matters most. The message of Jesus, the, the, the method of Jesus in the world that we live in, right? That's what it's about. That's what it's about. And I love that the Holy Spirit interrupts this moment, right? There's this faithful service, right? They're faithfully, like, worshiping together. And it says, the Holy Spirit said, here's what I want to do. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. There's a specific work that I want to accomplish. And so the church has to wrestle with this. And this is the last verse, the commissioning of the church. They've been worshiping and then they've been praying, but it says, then after fasting and praying some more, right? The Holy Spirit just spoke. Shouldn't you just send people off? Yeah, God, yeah, I think we're going to fast and pray some more. (laughs) Why? Because I think that the entire church is putting their heart behind it. Entire church is wrestling, letting it settle, right? This is who we are. This is what we want to be about. And so when they lay their hands on them, they pray for them and they send them off into the world. And in the very first missionaries, in a more formal way, enter into the story. It's such a cool story, but I, you know, I don't want to say a couple things out of this, right? First thing is this, is that there are key people that God has called to go and be missionaries, to be evangelists, right? I think about Nick Hall, right? Nick has been, you know, he grew up here. This is his hometown and area, and yet he felt called to, to evangelism, and now he's bringing Pulse and, and his evangelism back to, uh, to Fargo-Moorhead because he wants to see college students come to know Christ, and we go, man... God's doing great work in Nick, and we celebrate that. We love it. That's part of like sending people off and going, man, we bless your ministry. But here's the thing about commissioning is that commissioning to send somebody off is to say with whole authenticity what you believe that God has called you to do, we believe God has called you to do. And the emphasis on the we, because when we commission people to be sent, we also commission ourselves to live sent. That's the connection. Commissioning churches don't just send people. They live sent. That is massively important. And so when I think about Acts, and part of what I see here is that what the world needs is evangelists and missionaries. At the same time, what the world needs is evangelism. Because there are key individuals that God has called and gifted to go and to cross boundaries for the sake of the gospel. And yet what he says is for the rest of the church, what I want for you to do is to embrace evangelism where you live, where you work, and where you play. And it's when those two things come together that we see the ripple effects powered by the Holy Spirit. That's where the church is designed. Sent people and living sent types of people. You know, there's something to say about when Acts 1.8, when it starts in Jerusalem, right, and then it goes to the end of the earth, right? The end of the earth starts where? Acts 13. What happens before that? 12 chapters of mission and focus where? Jerusalem. 
You see, we look at send people, we go, we want to be a church that sends. We desperately want to be a church that sends, and we want the gospel to go everywhere. But at the same time, what we hope for and long for internationally starts locally, right here. And we are at the center of that. We are at the center of that. And so when I think about this funnel, as I close, begin to close this out here, as I think about this funnel, right, at the top is the diversity. And this is where we bring people into the church, into the body, not into a building, but into the body, right? And the more open it is, the more gospel-centric it is, right? And so the broader and the wider the diversity, the deeper the unity. But what comes out the bottom becomes a stronger force. So the wider the diversity, the deeper the unity, the stronger the commissioning. For people as a church who send people, but who also live sent in this world. And so we'll just wrap up and finish with this. Right? Just we go, how do we, how do we, you know, wrestle with this just in a small, you know, like applicational way, right? You go, okay, so for you, right, for you and me, right? We'll go, you and I. Like, there's the center. Like, we were at one point at the center. We still are because God is pursuing us in a different way, and he's growing us into Christ-likeness. But before we knew Christ, we were at the center of his redemptive, attractive love as he constantly came after us. And for some people in life, what he does is he gives a specific calling for Saul and for, for, for Barnabas. He says, I have set them aside to do a very specific thing. But for the rest of us, where does that leave us? Because you come out here and we go, you know, where I live, right? And I come over here and I go, man, like where I work, right? There's that school or that, that office building that you live in, you know, or work in rather, right? Or play, you know? It's, you know, it's a, it's a ball, whatever that is. It's a baseball, it's a basketball, it's a tennis ball, right? It's a football. Um, whatever that is for any people, we go, this is, who, this is where God has placed us. And so if you begin to see how this all connects to that Acts 1.8, is evangelists and evangelism, right? You begin to see the concentric circles of Acts 1.8. What started right here in the middle continues to build, and it has ripple effects out into the world. And that's what Acts has in relevance for us today is that we are a part of this same story and that you and I, and collectively we are at the center of God's love. Guys, okay, so I just want to you know, end with this. Healthy churches think about, think about not just in, in mind, but also in practice, they think about the lost. And so I want to leave you with this passage in Revelation. Um, and it's, it's at the end of the story. So as you put yourself at the end of the story, you think about the church. Here's John's revelation. He says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that none or no one could number. That's crazy. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Because they're all different and yet they're all the same. That's the church. Uh, as you guys go this week and give you guys three things just to be processing. One, pray. 
pray, just ask that God would remind you that you were at the center and are at the center of his redemptive love, right? Um, I want to invite you in the midst of that too, though, is that tomorrow or Tuesday, we've got a prayer gathering over in room 16 where the prayer team's going to lead. It's good to pray at home. It's great to pray together. And there are so many hurting and broken people, and there are lost people in this city, and we want to pray over all of that. And so we invite you at 7 o'clock to come on Tuesday night in room 16 and to join us. Next thing would be table. I just invite you to fast this week. Just re-enter this back into your rhythm, even for a time. Take some time to focus on God and purely on God. And the last thing is this. As strange as it sometimes seems, I just want to ask you to write. Who are three people, the names of three people that God may want you to invest in in this season? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to you, as we wrap up a time in, in singing and thinking about your faithfulness, how your faithfulness has been running after us, Lord, I pray that, that you would remind each and every one of us right here this morning, whatever our story, whatever our struggles, whatever you know, our joys, whatever trials and pains might be going on in our life right now, like whatever tension is in our heart, Lord, would you show up and, and very pointedly and specifically say to each of us, I love you. I love you so much and I have pursued you since the beginning and I'm glad that you are mine and I will continue to love you and to grow you. I also want to invite you into something bigger. And so Lord, I pray that you would remind us that we are at the center of your love, but that there is a, that there is a mission out there that the fields are ripe for harvest. And as we continue to build this culture as a church who holistically speaks well of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart for each other, that you would give us a heart for the nations, because that is your church. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.